Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. My name is Donald Lee, and it's my pleasure this evening to host a book reading by Alberta author Carlene Marie. This online reading series is sponsored by the Rosé Foundation, which is dedicated to Alberta's arts and culture community. Without the Rosé Foundation, there would be no online reading series. Hello, Carlene. I've enjoyed reading your book over the past few weeks, and I'm really looking forward to your online book reading tonight. And uh, you have been preparing for this event as well, I imagine. Thank you, Donald. Yes, I have. It's a pleasure to be here, and especially on the fall equinox. Right, exactly. Well, uh, listeners, those of you who are joining us on Zoom, our format for tonight will be Carlene is going to read several short sections from her memoir. And those of you who are joining us live can submit questions at any time. And we'll have Carlene address those questions either after each section that she reads or at the end, whichever Carlene thinks is most appropriate. We're planning for about 45 minutes together. So we will try to wrap it up by about 7.45. Once again, if you're just joining us a few minutes late, this is the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. And uh, let me just introduce to all of you, Carlene Marie. This is her first book, so she's probably unknown to all of us. Carlene Marie is an Edmonton author. She spent two decades in the healthcare industry before having a transformational experience and making some big changes in her life. She started meditating and learning about the Eastern traditions of healing and wellness. And she is now the owner of Heart Centered Life, where she connects personal pleasure and professional stories in mind, body, and soul. Carlene uses insight writing, meditation, and yoga to connect stories with deeper meaning, purpose, and flow. Today, Carlene is reading from her new memoir titled Orchid of Fate. Carlene, again, welcome. And please tell us now a little about your first reading. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who is watching and to the Writers Guild and the Rosé Foundation. So Orchid of Fate was inspired by a transformation that I had in 2007. And at that time, I was trying to end my migraines. I was very frustrated with the migraines that I had in my life. And I approached my doctor um, with what I would call aggression. I was, all I could think about is I don't want to have migraines anymore and I'll do anything I can to get rid of them. And unexpectedly, um, I created a Kundalini crisis with my intention to end migraines. And a Kundalini crisis is an Eastern 
way of describing consciousness or the life force within a person. And when the life force releases within a person too quickly, it is called a crisis because it brings with it a whole bunch of information that we're not prepared to process. So this event took me by surprise. It lasted for four days and three nights. I call it the January incident. And it was the catalyst for this memoir that I wrote, Orchid of Fate. And I'm going to read a short excerpt from the January incident, which is the third night. And what I'm experiencing on the third night is auditory hallucinations. I haven't been able to eat or sleep in days. I've had a tremendous electrical charge running up and down my spine for days. And I'm basically exhausted and terrified. So this is night three. Each time my eyes closed, the screaming sounds of terror drew closer. I heard the sound approaching on thunderous hooves and imagined the death riders in Lord of the Rings. I couldn't bear what was happening to me. The ground seemed to shake as I listened to the unrelenting mercilessness draw closer. Out of fear and desperation, I began to chant a biblical passage I remembered. In the end, only three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love, faith, hope, love, faith, hope, love. I recited the mantra, trying to block out the sound. Faith, hope, love, trying to block the terror. Faith, hope, love, trying to block my own demise. After several hours of this, the only strength I had left was to repeat the word love. Love, and there was blackness. Love, terror, blackness. Love, terror, blackness. The closer terror's death cries approached, the faster the image of love was erased. It was such a thin, tiny, weak word attempting to exist within the blackness of hell. It seemed almost irrelevant. It was too frail to exist, and yet it was all I had. In every moment, the death riders came closer. I heard their screeching and all was erased to blackness. Near the end, I could see them approaching, three black hooded and cloaked death riders on great slobbering horses. I repeated love as they surrounded me. I repeated love as their steaming breath flowed into my ears. I repeated love as they were consuming me with their screaming. I was completely helpless, but for that simple little word, love. And through Orchid of Fate, I use love as an energy, or I describe love as an energy that connects what needs to be connected in a moment. So it's not romantic love, and it's not maybe the, the kind of terminology that we're used to using for love. And I encourage you to ask yourself, what is your definition of love? Or have you even thought about how you describe love in your own life? Because when I was writing this book, the feedback I would get from people was, 
you need to describe what love is. You need to describe what you mean by love. And I realized that many people have never thought about their definition of love. So thank you for that. Donald, back to you. Great, thank you so much, Carlene. Your, your, your book title, Orchid of Fate, and, and the term fate um, is a major theme in your book and the, the word comes up very often. Fate has, has many meanings. And also, I wasn't familiar with the, the three sisters of fate that you refer to over and over in the book. Can you explain for all of our listeners what, what you mean by the word fate and the origin of the three sisters and how that, how that fits into the whole memoir? Yes, thank you. Um, well, fate, generally speaking, is anything that's predetermined. And I've always been really curious about what in life is predetermined and what can we change? And I describe fate as originating from five common pillars. And those pillars are the same for all people. So there are parents, there the time period that we're born into, they're the country, the place and time of, of our birth, the gender at birth, and the bone structure. And I also added in a sixth, which is um, if I'm working with people, then it's, it's also where you are in birth order. So these pillars, as I see it, set up the greatest patterns for our life. And these patterns I call once upon a time patterns. They're once upon a time we were born at this and this and this. And these are the patterns that set up the template for our life. And so to use a metaphor, I created a mythology about three sisters of fate. And Agami is the oldest sister of fate. And she owns the patterns of once upon a time. Her middle sister, the middle sister is Parabda and she owns what I call the shadow realm. So dreams and synchronicities and serendipity and less obvious places. And Sangeeta is the youngest sister and she owns the space of pure potential where there isn't any patterns. And I said about, um, writing about the sisters in the prologue so that the reader has an idea of what I mean and the reader can reference um, how the sisters relate to my life, but more importantly, how they relate to the reader's life. So this is just a little bit of the prologue, starting with um, a quote from Kabir. There is a secret one inside of us, the planets like galaxies, pass through its hands like beads. In the beginning, the great one turned from the heavens towards the earth and blue, gathering the fates within the winds, stirred the elements and life took shape. Soon there was a flower, a gazelle, a human. Every life blossomed into a story. Every story began with once upon a time. Before the beginning, at the time before time, the Great One met the wishes of three masterful sisters. Agami, the oldest of the fates, spoke first. 
Oh, great one, she said with veiled humility. You've seen how I've ordered the stars and the heavens, rolling stillness into motion and motion into ceaseless patterns. Are you not pleased with the circling of the sun and the orbit of the moon? The great one remaining motionless was pleased and also not. It is heard, Agami lowered her voice, that you will one day breathe new shape into the elements and call it life. Leaving her knowledge to linger in the deafening silence, she bowed towards the great one and continued. I know I speak for all the fates. When I say to you, my will is to own the story. For to see again the chaos without order and the endless pandemonium would surely undo my doing. There she paused, having said enough and vanished into the eternal cosmos, leaving the great one to contemplate her wishes. Parabda, gifted at evading her older sister, would own the shadow realm. The great one imagined her poking holes in her sister's ironclad will to repeat and push on. Moving from the depths, she would create the unexpected, messing with the known and challenge her older sister from the darkest places. Parabda would reveal what isn't seen, uncover the elements mingling beneath the log in the mucky murk, where life is thick and rich just beyond knowing. She would own the night sky and the sleeping realm where the visions of the deep come alive, the unhappy endings, the unforeseen surprise, the discoveries of chance and good fortune, the near misses, the synchronicities, the bad luck and the good, and all places where swift action and right timing stick a cog in Agami's spinning wheels. Parabda would orchestrate leaving life's inherited story of once upon a time, for the great one knew that she too longed for something more. Sangeeta would become everything more, everything beyond her sisters. Born of love, she would hold the key to the sanctum that blossoms new life within the life, the bloom on a rose, that spark of mystery, the resonance of tone that brings healing to words, tears to the melody, flow into life and joy to the mundane. In her sacred realm, she would harmonize the smallest elements, oscillate the subtle into perfect balance and gift life with her peaceful contentment. For Sangeeta flows without force, without patterns. She exists beautifully beyond chaos, gently beyond Agami's power, poised with her golden harp, strumming what is into what could be. Yes, Sangeeta would entice life with her equanimity, her sanguine song and her blooms of destiny. She would become the center of it all. There in the center of the circle of life, Sangeeta would own the space of pure potential. Love's unclaimed gold, the great poem of life. And so Sangeeta represents the orchid of fate. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Carlene. That's, that's a good introduction to these, these three sisters. Uh, tell me another thing. The, the migraines, of course, were such a huge part of your life. And accompanying the migraines, you have an experience that you call the hurricane. And can you explain for us what you mean by the hurricane and how the hurricane and the migraines all kind of tie in with, with your memories of your past and your, your kind of, I guess, your understanding of who you are in all of it? Yes. Um, 
So the hurricane is what I call the story that I tell myself about migraines. And the story is laden with emotional um, memory, with self-statements that are untrue, with moods, with symptoms. It's kind of akin to, um, let's say somebody cuts themselves and everybody can relate to what it feels like to just immediately have a, a clean cut somewhere on your body. That has a certain sensation, but let's say that cut gets infected and now you've laid pain over top of pain. This is what I would describe the hurricane to be like. There's the actual physical migraine pain, but then there's the whole set of moods and, and exacerbated body symptoms and self-statements that overlays the migraines every time I get a migraine. So after the January incident, I'm exploring my life in a deeper way. I'm very changed. My reference point for living is very different. Many changes are occurring in my life. And I'm realizing that the way I experience migraines is, I guess, worse than it needs to be. And I start to, to connect my past through memories with some of the, the, the hurricane or the moods that I experience. So after, after the January incident, I take the reader back to little vignettes about my early childhood. So usually the memories are, I'm about five, and younger. And the first memory that I share is called the snow. And it starts with a quote from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. My earliest memory is of the snow. I was two years old. My mother and I were walking together on a cold winter day in the Yukon. I could hear the crisp sounds of our boots crunching with each step. There was immense beauty all around and I was elated by the sunlit reflections shimmering everywhere I looked. It was like a sea of diamonds. I wanted to touch them, to play with them, to share my feelings about such magical beauty with my mother, but equally I was compelled to find out the name of these transcendental stars of the white. I contemplated the essence of my question. The twinkles were smaller than the snow and different than the snow. They were also brighter than the snow and dazzled on top of the snow. Racking my toddler brain, the only word I knew smaller than snow was germs, to which I exuberantly pointed and shouted, it's the germs, to which my mother flatly replied, no, it's the snow. Desperate to coordinate the moment with my now shaking finger, I pointed germs. No, it's the snow. This banter escalated immediately to frustration. I knew what I wanted, but I couldn't get it. I already knew the word for snow. So why would I be excited about the snow? I was used to seeing snow. I needed to know. What I'm trying to say is there's something smaller and twinkling on top of the snow.
know that I both love and want to share with you, but that I don't yet know the words for. Do you not see them too? Do you not share in this place of wonder and joy along with me? What are these pure creatures of beauty called? You are my mother. I need you to understand me. Please tell me, what is it I'm seeing? But despite my greatest efforts and my finger pointing and shaking with pure rage, all that bumbled out was, it's the germs, followed by the same reply, it's the snow. Deflation consumed me, the twinkles lost their beauty, and the world fell like the moment, flat. In that magical moment of childhood exuberance, something exceptional was lost. I felt it course through every cell in my little body. My soul was calling. Thank you very much, Carlene. That's a, a wonderful first, you know, er, early memory. I, I don't think I remember anything from two years old. So that's uh, incredible that you actually remember something. But all of us do have, have some impactful memories of our early life. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Um, tell me next, uh, your migraines were a major theme of your life and obviously then in your memoir. Can you explain for our audience how your understanding of your migraines changed over time and how this paralleled your own spiritual growth over time? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, well, definitely when I start my journey, I am very egoic about my migraines, meaning my migraines aren't giving me what I want. They're taking away the kind of life I feel I deserve. They're a hardship and a suffering. And I'm not seeing any value in the migraines at all. And after the January incident, and as my life changes and shifts and unfolds, my perspective also changes on migraines. And I start to realize that there is value in pain. And I encourage the reader to think about my, what, I'm, what I'm explaining through my migraines, but you may not have migraines. What is your pain? And can you glean any insights for your own pain from my migraine experience? Because I do believe that pain is, it, it's not an egoic gift, but it's a gift in the long run. Most people who have gone through hardship or are experiencing it regularly do come around to understanding that it made them a better person. So I'll read a little bit from chapter 15. And in chapter 15, I'm recognizing for the first time that my migraines aren't just taking from me, they're actually giving to me. The chapter is called The Hidden Gift, and it starts with a quote from John Kabat-Zinn. Healing is a transformation of view rather than a cure. To go deeper in understanding my migraines, I needed to look at them as though they were a wise sage rather than an encroaching enemy. In a holistic sense, this is a feminine approach to healing. It is not direct. Cause and effect are not linear in this wellness paradigm. Wholeness has a psychological component as described by Dr. David Kruger. 
A psychological symptom is a somatic story authored by emotions. A symptom gives disguised voice to what their creator avoids knowing, a secret hiding in the open. A symptom is a component of a story that needs, indeed begs, to be told in its entirety, listened to rather than silenced artificially, respected rather than disregarded. Rather than hate my migraines and push them away like the enemy, I needed to look beyond the literal and into the emotional and subtle body of myself. To get to know anything about a symptom, it needs to be befriended in the biggest way. I needed to befriend my migraines, the part of me I hated the most. Migraines had robbed me of every seeming pleasure since as far back as I could remember. To befriend them, I needed to accept them fully. Not passive giving up acceptance, but really accepting, like you would accept a good friend, flaws and all. Acceptance as a way of deep seeing had to be embraced so that I could see what was before me. Seeing clearly is a big part of transformation. I was learning that I needed to accept, befriend, and see before I could make peace with migraines. But acceptance didn't happen overnight. I was ignorant to the enormous practice migraines were gifting me. So I started with a question. What are my migraines giving me? If the body is wise, and I know it is, why is it giving me migraines? What is it trying to tell me? I reflected on this question for months and wrote and journaled the answers. The most obvious answers were stillness, solitude, and quiet. And in writing these down as though seeing them for the first time, I couldn't deny that these qualities are actually very valuable aspects of life and qualities I was hoping to cultivate more of as a yoga and meditation teacher. I couldn't be a meditation teacher if I had a problem with stillness, inner or outer, solitude or quiet. Migraines were building my patience and teaching me to listen to important places inside of myself like a feather softly brushing my heart or a gentle nudge from my soul. I kept reflecting and journaling and saw that migraines were asking me to slow down and be less driven, less goal oriented and more in the moment. Life is a gigantic process of becoming. So much rushing misses the moments as they fly by and by and by. Again, especially in the Eastern traditions I was teaching in, slowing down was not only important, it was desirable. Migraines gave me empathy for others in pain and were slowly teaching me self-compassion. Empathy and compassion are the hallmarks of connection and love of self and others. They are also essential in working as a yoga and meditation teacher. As I continued to write and reflect, I started to acknowledge that what migraines were giving me was starting to look bigger than what they were taking from me. Thank you very much, Carlene. Um, I just want to, at this point, remind uh, those of you who are uh, listening in, watching in on Zoom, go ahead and type questions in that you have for Carlene at any time, and we will uh, address them possibly as they come up. But uh, I, th I think we only have one more reading, I think. Is that right? Or was that the last reading section, Carlene? 
Um, that is the last one that I had planned to read, but certainly I can read something. <laughs> well, so uh, so listeners, please um, uh, type in your, your questions for Carlene. Uh, Carlene, I, I have a little bit more. Your, um, so chapter 15 is, is somewhere around the middle of the book and towards the end, then you get more and more into um, looking at what chapter 15 is, is starting to look at here and looking at kind of a meaning in your pain, in your experience of uh, victimization. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on in your readings yet is is uh, incident of abuse from your father that also had a, a big impact on your life. Mm -hmm. And as I was reflecting on on some of these things in the last couple of days, it occurred to me that that this the incident of abuse from your father was was not a big thing, but your thoughts about it affected your whole life. It's kind of like the quote that starts the beginning of chapter 15, right? It's, it transformed your view of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very typical about, um, about trauma, pain, experiences we have early in life. And in healing, which your, your whole professional life has been about healing, you know, first in the in the Western medical tradition and, and now kind of in the Eastern traditions of healing and wellness. But in healing, of course, we can't change past events, but we can change our thoughts about those events and ultimately change our thoughts about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where healing come in, comes in. Mm -hmm. And this ultimately is what healing and spiritual growth is all about, changing our thoughts about life and then our life changes. Mm -hmm. Does does your perspective and your reflecting on on your experience fit with that sort of perspective of pain, suffering, victimization, all those things that that happen to all of us to some extent or in some form? Mm -hmm. uh, it very much does. Um, the only thing that I I add to that is depending on the age that a person was when they experienced victimization, trauma or abuse, and also depending on the disposition of the person, um, thinking about Myers-Briggs and different personality types, some people will experience the, instead of thoughts, they will be experiencing body sensations. And, um, so, so my experience was sort of overlapping. Um, there were definitely thoughts associated with the, the victimization and this, the abuse, but they weren't front and center. And they often presented as symptoms in the body and moods before they presented as thoughts. So it took a lot of work to get to the, almost to the point of origin, I guess is what I would call it. And, and I also want to say that thoughts come in layers because I, I think there's a naivety sometimes that people approach um, trauma and, and victimization with by, by being too glib. Like, oh, I'm in a bad mood, so 
well, I'll just put on a smiley face and I'll change my thoughts. And it's, that doesn't work at a superficial level. It does work if you get down to a cl closer to the epicenter of where that thought is origin originating from. So, so yes, I agree with you. And I'm also, I guess, adding to that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. That's, that's, um, that's, I would, I would call that profound, Carlene. Thank you very much. Uh, we have we have one question here that was submitted. What was your writing process for your memoir? And I think that's a fascinating one. Many of the people tuning in will be writers, as and I am actually working on a memoir right now too. And the whole process of, yeah, like, well, how do you do this? So can you kind of trace that out for all of us? What was the process of writing a memoir? For sure. I wouldn't do it the same way again. The process was very organic. The book kind of wrote itself in some ways. I did not follow a template. In fact, what happened was these memories that I share in the book, um, they were, there was something in them. They were, they meant something to me before the January incident. And I wrote them down expecting that I would at some point write a completely different book and they, they might somehow be related, but they stood alone untouched. And then the January incident occurred. And I went back realizing that those memories held pieces of my story of the migraines, the hurricane. So I went ahead and put the book together, thinking it was again, done and everybody would get it. And I, I put it out there to a few um, uh, writers in residence and the first one was Richard Van Camp and he was like your book doesn't deliver <laughs> and I was like I don't know what oh, I don't know what that's so means. crushing right oh no <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what he meant I was like I don't know what that means but and so he spelled it out for me and I was like oh he said you get it and you know maybe some meditators will get it and a few yogis uh but the average reader is not going to get it. You've got to you've got to build things in a lot more, a lot more bridging. And so then the second writer in residence um, took that bridging and then started to ask me a bunch of really detailed questions, like, "Well, what do you mean by love? And what do you mean by this? And what do you mean by that?" And I thought, "Oh no, like <laughs> this is going to be a textbook. I don't want it to be a textbook." But anyways. That's basically how it unfolded is it, it started with the memories, Kundalini events occurred independently, the two bridged, different editors and, and writer, writers gave me their feedback and there you have it. Yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. The, the real work of writing, right? Taking your your shitty first draft and actually trying to <laughs> to create something artistic and meaningful out of that. Yeah, that's that's where the, the real work comes in. There's a, we have another question here, but just before we get to that, can I ask you to kind of can take one more step from that? Writing a memoir, especially a spiritual memoir like you you've written, is often in itself a process of spiritual growth. Hmm. Did you find that? And can you kind of flesh that out, that experience for us? And kind of what you, what insights perhaps you gained about yourself and your own spiritual journey at, because you wrote the memoir? 
Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I, but I, I, I wholeheartedly believe it. It's, it's the process. Um, you can't sit down for hours and hours and hours and years and add all the years up and not be transformed by your actions. And so it, you know, I, I, I guess maybe the best way to answer it is just to say like, I, I couldn't write this book now. I could not write Orchid of Fate now. When I read it, I feel like I'm reading like the, the memories that once felt poignant and powerful, they feel interesting and cute or a little bit curious or I like how they were written or maybe I don't, but there's nothing in me anymore that goes, that makes me weep or um, feels overwhelming or any of that. So I would say that that it was probably very, very cathartic, even if I didn't realize that it was cathartic at the time. And um, yeah, that's that's what I would say, Donald. Yeah, very good. That's exactly the word I was thinking of too. Was it was cathartic? We, you, that the tension, the pain, the the stress, the, the kind of these things that we've carried through our lives that have been the the energy has gone out of them through yeah. the process of going back and reflecting and processing and writing about them and, and drawing some meaning out of them that were perhaps we didn't see before. Yes. We have another great question here and one that I think, great question, thank you very much Debbie Willis for asking this because I think it's, it's not easy to understand and I think it's even harder to do. Question is, I'm curious, about how you manage to make friends with or approach your physical pain rather than try to push it away. Was that intuitive or a choice? Don't worry about going over time. Many people joined late. Now, I'm not sure if that's uh, Debbie Willis's comment or Jason Norman from the Writers Guild of Alberta. So okay. go ahead, that's, that's a great, and, and that's a spiritual growth process in itself, isn't it? Coming to definitely, terms with pain. Definitely. Um, I think it it started intentionally as, I, I don't even, okay, it's very hard to, for me to honestly answer that question. I was stubborn. I wanted a cure. Honestly, if I, if I could have, I don't cure my migraines. I still have migraines. I had a migraine two days ago because I was painting at a weird angle and it triggered a migraine. I would have loved my book to end with, oh, my migraines are gone and I'm cured and it's a miracle and they're not gone. But I can definitely wholeheartedly say that what is gone is the hurricane. So the self story and the, so, so let me say it differently through the process of writing about my migraines, reflecting on them and trusting and believing that they were in my life for a reason of self-growth, for, for a reason that I didn't understand and I maybe didn't want to understand, but I had to trust that they were there for a reason. And I, and I chose to look for that positive reason. So the difference between say a migraine that I had two days ago and a migraine I might have had 10 years ago would be the one 10 years ago, I would be 
depressed, down and out, um, maybe angry. Maybe I wouldn't be able to get out of bed for days. Maybe I would feel victimized. Um, and this other migraine, I, I feel joyful in myself while still having pain. So I go about, I, I do have to modify my behavior because that would just be foolish not to. Like I wouldn't go for a hard bike ride with a migraine or watch TV or something that would irritate my eyes. But within myself, I'm able to maintain joy and peace and contentment. So I hope that's helpful. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think so. Thank, thank you, Carlene. If, if I could be so bold as to add just a few thoughts of my own to Debbie Willis's question, it's um, like dealing the, this, your specific question was, was dealing with physical pain. How do you make friends with physical pain? I think it's part of a broader issue of growth in all of our lives. And that is the issue of acceptance versus judgment. So whether it's a, a physical pain that you're having or something that's happening in your life or in the world around you that you don't think is right, the, the idea, and it's more of an Eastern idea, is that if it's happening, mm -hmm. we need to accept it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have a migraine. Like, nothing is gained by, by fighting against it or judging that this, this is bad, this shouldn't be happening. It's happening. We have so many things happening in our world right now that all of us are judging. Mm -hmm. And I'm falling into that as much as anyone else, right? We have half the world mad uh, because the other half is not wearing masks and the other half is mad because the first half is wearing masks. We're all uh, judging each other. And if we can step back from that and just uh, accept that this is happening. If you go somewhere, some people are wearing masks, some people are not. That, that's what's happening. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But, but by accepting it, you reduce the stress, the anxiety, uh, and all of the reactions that are going on in your own mind. And the same thing happens with physical pain, right? Mm -hmm. If something has happened to you, you're experiencing pain. Um, it, it's a matter of accepting that, okay, I'm experiencing pain. I don't have to like it. But by accepting that this is happening now, this is, this is my reality that I'm experiencing, it just is. And that, that lessens. Um, I think I would yeah. also add to that, Debbie and Donald, um, that through the process of acceptance, there are other processes that develop. And one of them is truly believing and trusting that what is happening in my life is happening for, for a I don't want to say a positive reason, but it's a reason I can trust. And that is something I would have never said even four years ago. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I might even got enraged if somebody had said it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I can just say, if you're curious about your own pain, um, and everybody has pain, I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't have pain whether it's grief or it's physical or whatever it is, it's, you have it, get curious about it and see what happens and just try it. See what happens. Yeah. 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 
with an attitude of sort of a hmm that's interesting <laughs> i yeah. i wonder what i'm supposed to learn from this right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Good. So Monica Ellis has asked a question. <clears throat> Monica, you want to skip to the final scene and read the last page of the book first, right? She asks, what is your relationship like with your mother now? Oh, that's an awesome question, Monica. <laughs> um, it's really quite good. Um, but I have to say, it's a really good thing that my memories are only five and under. Because if you read my teenage years, you would be seeing a very different picture. I was a hellion and um, my poor mother, she was a single mom. She, she, she had to bear the brunt of that and it, it wasn't pretty. Um, so we have come far. We've come very, very far. Um, we, we enjoy our time together now. We share frequently. We talk a few times a week. We have a good relationship, and I and I feel really grateful that it is what it is now. Yeah. Great. Thank. Thanks, Caroline. And Julie asks. Um, I think we we kind of may have covered this uh, already somewhat, but perhaps we could address Julie's question anyway. Do you think that writing your book helped you to work through and understand your pain? Yes, 100%. Yes, 100%. Um, and that's why um, I, when I teach, um, I, I try to incorporate aspects of writing for people. So because even if it, it doesn't have to be a book, but if it's journaling, if it's, if it's little moments, it, getting that out on a page is a transformative experience. So I didn't intend it to be transformative, but it is definitely transformative. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you. Writing, uh, writing anything, I think, is both um, a transformative, cathartic, uh, illuminating, enlightening. Um, yeah, helps all. It's like it's like uh, going to your psychiatrist without having to pay the fee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We, we've worked through our questions and we've worked through our time. So uh, let me just close by reminding everyone that this online reading series uh, through the Writers Guild of Alberta is sponsored by the Rosé Foundation, which is dedicated to Alberta's arts and culture community. Without the Rosé Foundation, there would be no online reading series. So thank you. Rosé Foundation. For those of you who are uh, wondering, I hope all of you are wondering, Carlene's book, The Orchid of Fate, can be purchased on Amazon. It's available both in paperback and in ebook. The ebooks are also available on Google Play and on Smashwords. And Carlene would love to connect with you on social media. She's on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can uh, search her there or through her website, which is easy to remember. It's heartcentered.ca. And for anyone who leaves a review on Amazon, all of you, uh, probably realize that as authors, we just desperately need those reviews. So please leave a review for Carlene. Carlene, if, if you do that, uh, the Carlene is offering a gift copy of Orchid of Fate, which you could uh, give to someone else as Christmas present, right? Books are great Christmas presents. Or if you'd prefer, you will get a, an early release copy of her 
upcoming satire, a next book entitled Poor White Kids. And I'm sure she's probably referring to her own kids, right? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I, I, actually, I'm referring to my brother and I, and it's quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. So uh, thank you uh, so much. Uh, Julie has just added one more comment. Thank you. I absolutely loved your book. You are such an inspiration. Thanks, Julie. So uh, leave Carlene a review on Amazon. That would be fantastic. Thanks again to everyone. Thank you, Carlene. It's Thank been a delight. You. Thank you to all of us who have joined us here on Zoom and have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you.